Race to Walk Podcast, Episode 43. Welcome to the Raise to Walk Podcast, where we're walking out the life of faith. Romans 6, verse 4 reads, As Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. And this show is designed to help you do just that. Now here's your host, Carla Alvarez. joining me today on the Race Walk podcast and today I'm going to be reviewing a book by David Bentley Hart and it is called Atheist Delusions. The full title is Atheist Delusions, The Christian Revolution and Its Fashionable Enemies. So all of us know someone who is not a believer in Christ. Many of us likely know someone who is not only an unbeliever, but one who is aggressive in their unbelief. If the subject of a religion or faith comes up, they bring up an area in which they think Christians or Christianity itself reflects poorly and hammer relentlessly against your faith. At times, religion doesn't even have to come up at all. Just knowing you're a Christian, they'll bring it up using you as a target for their bully pulpit. If you have experienced anything along these lines, or someone you care about is an unbeliever, Atheist Delusions by David Bentley Hart is for you. It's not from your unbelieving friend. It is for you. Not that the unbelieving friend couldn't benefit from reading this book. However, in Peter's exhortation to always be ready to give an answer for the hope that is within you, the qualification is to do so with gentleness and respect. This is in 1 Peter 3.15. And Hart provides some very strong responses in this book. Hart is a theologian, a visiting professor, and is referred to as a polemicist. Atheist Delusions is an overview of how frequently and consistently full historical context is ignored in order to serve a humanist agenda. Hart sets the record straight on a number of distorted narratives and he begins the book with this note. Perfect detachment is impossible for even the soberest of historians since the writing of history necessarily demands some sort of narrative of causes and effects and is thus necessarily an act of interpretation, which by its nature can never be wholly free of prejudice. So this is important to remember as often information is presented as an unbiased and clear view of history when in fact the presentation is a result of a very distorted lens. Everyone even historians bring preconceptions and a particular worldview to the table. Beware of those who are not honest about it. Hart's intention with the book is to present a more even-handed history of the church for the first five centuries. Or, if one does not believe a Christian can do that objectively, a reader will at least have to consider the case Hart makes as it is much more fully sourced and comprehensive than the standard church detractors. Specifically, he states, My chief ambition in writing is to call attention to the peculiar and radical nature of the new faith in that setting. How enormous a transformation of thought, sensibility, culture, morality, 
and spiritual imagination Christianity constituted in the age of pagan Rome, the liberation it offered from fatalism, cosmic despair, and the terror of the occult agencies, the immense dignity it conferred upon the human person, its subversion of the cruelest aspects of pagan society, its, alas, only partial, demystification of political power, its ability to create moral community where none had existed before, and its elevation of active charity above all other virtues. Stated in its most elementary and most buoyantly positive form, my argument is, first of all, that among all the many great transitions that have sparked the evolution of Western civilization, whether convulsive or gradual, political or philosophical, social or scientific, material or spiritual, there has only been one, the triumph of Christianity that can be called in the fullest sense a revolution, a truly massive and epochal revision of humanity's prevailing vision of reality, so pervasive in its influence and so vast in its consequences as actually to have created a new conception of the world, of history, of human nature, of time, and of the moral good. To my mind, I should add, it was an event immeasurably more impressive in its cultural creativity and more ennobling in its moral power than any other movement of spirit, will, imagination, aspiration, or accomplishment in the history of the West. When you read about the transformative power the Church has had on culture, doesn't it make you stop and question what the modern Church is missing? So atheist delusions is separated into four parts. The first is faith, reason, and freedom, a view from the present. Then the mythology of the secular age, modernity's rewriting of the Christian past. The third, revolution, the Christian invention of the human. And finally, reaction and retreat, modernity and the eclipse of the human. In the first part, Hart assesses the current state of the treatment of Christianity by culture as a whole, noting that it has rarely been more fashionable to bash Christianity. He makes short work of Christianity's most notable op opponents, describing Richard Dawkins as, quote, the zoologist and tireless tractarian who, despite his embarrassing incapacity for philosophical reasoning, never fails to entrance his eager readers with his rhetorical recklessness, and who has a penchant for what he calls inane memes. He describes Christopher Hitchens as a journalist who, quote, whose talent for intellectual caricature somewhat exceeds his mastery of consecutive logic, and Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code as, quote, the most lucrative novel ever written by a borderline illiterate. I'm sure you're beginning to see why he has earned the title of polemicist. Throughout this section, Hart pokes, pokes holes in the logic, or rather points to the gaping holes, in the skeptics' arguments and illustrates the areas they misinterpret, misunderstand, or misrepresent. One particular point he makes in skeptics' seeming assumption that believers have never asked these same questions or examined their own faith. He writes, it is always perilous to attempt to tell others what or why they believe, and it is especially unwise to assume, 
that believers as a species do not constantly evaluate or reevaluate their beliefs. Anyone who actually lives among persons of faith knows that this is simply untrue. Obviously, though, there is no point in demanding of believers that they produce criteria for their beliefs unless one is willing to conform one's expectations to the kind of claims being made. For while it is unquestionably true that perfectly neutral proofs in support of faith cannot be generally adduced, it is not a neutral form of knowledge that is at issue. Dennett's belief that no one need take seriously any claim that cannot be tested by a scientific method is merely fatuous. By that standard, I need not believe that the Battle of Salamis ever took place, that the widower next door loves the children from, for whom he tirelessly provides, or that I might be wise to trust my oldest friend even if he tells me something I do not care to hear. In Part 2, The Mythology of the Secular Age, Modernity's Rewriting of the Christian Path, Hart demolishes some pernicious myths regarding the Church's past, such as it was only through Roman decree that Christianity was adopted rather than the fact that it was the outpouring of Christian charity to those who were social out outcasts that drew people in. He also addresses the mistaken but widespread belief that science and reason were smothered during the time of the ascendancy in the political realm of the church. He points out that while modern scholarship has abandoned that claim and recognizes the flowering of the sciences and arts during the Middle Ages, writing that, quote, the tale of the birth of the modern world has largely disappeared from respectable academic literature and survives now principally at the level of folklore, intellectual journalism, and vulgar le legend, and that it is unfortunate that it is not these from whom the public get their information, but rather, quote, bad popular histories. Other missed heart tackles in this section are Jonathan Kirsch's claims that Christians burned the library at Alexandria, that Christians were anti-learning and, and, and anti-women in particular, the claim that Islam and the recurrence of paganism salvaged the West from the intellectual dustbin, and that the church was at war with science, including an explanation of the dynamics and play behind Galileo's trial. Hart also spends quite a bit of time dismantling the claim that the church was a source of intolerance, bigotry, and oppression, and that it was only when the authority of the church began to decline that true freedom was obtained. Instead, he illustrates that we see violence increased in proportion to the degree of sovereignty claimed by the state, and that whenever the medieval church surrendered moral authority to secular power, injustice and cruelty flourished. We find also that early medieval society, for all its privations, inequities, and deficiencies, was in most ways far more just charitable, and ultimately peaceful than the imperial culture it succeeded, and immeasurably more peaceful and even more charitable, as incredible as it, that may seem to us, than the society created by the early modern triumph of the nation-state. I think we can see this as true in our culture today. Jesus tells us that this is not our home. We are not living just for the here and now, but for eternity. And what we do in the now has eternal consequences. 
I don't think that it was the fact that the church itself had rule, but that it was a constant reminder of who is to be the true ruler of our life. There are seemingly no immediate consequences for being a bad Christian, and so it is easy to forget that while consequences may be delayed, a reckoning will eventually come. And next we move on to part three, revolution, the Christian invention of the human. As I just mentioned, we today have a cheap view of faith. However, in the third section, Hart highlights what a radical and momentous event a decision for Christ was meant to be. He writes, For most of the Christians of the earliest centuries, for them, baptism was of altogether more radical nature. It was understood as nothing less than a total transformation of the person who submitted to it. And as a ritual event, it was certainly understood as being far more than a mere dramaturgical allegory of one's choice of religious association. To become a Christian was to renounce a very great deal of what one had known and been to that point in order to be joined to a new reality, the demands of which were absolute. It was to depart from one world with an irrevocable finality and to enter another. Hart includes a very detailed description of the earliest rites of baptism. It was not a small thing. He also reminds us that Christians had a supernatural worldview. They were not simply believing naturalists. They understood pagan gods to be deceiving spirits and that baptism was to, quote, renounce one's bonds to these beings as an act of cosmic rebellion, a declaration that one had been emancipated from the prince of this world. Hart also dispatches with the claim that early Christianity was nothing more than an amalgamation of various pagan religions, pointing out that, quote, one cannot deny that Christianity entered the ancient world as a faith strangely incapable of alloy with other creeds. It differed from all other devotions in requiring of its adherents loyalty, not only devout, but exclusive. Rather, it was, as Hart points out, the heretical Gnostic Christians who were, quote, audaciously audaciously synchronistic and drew freely on Persian, Jewish, Mesopotamian, Greek, Syrian, and Egyptian thought simultaneously, some even to the complete exclusion of any overt Christian symbolism. The current tendency to give more weight to Gnostic thought as it relates to early Christian origins is unwarranted. The group, in relation to the larger Christian community as a whole, was, as Hart says, marginal, eccentric, and novel. And the thought and literature characterized by, quote, the vapid obscurantism and the incontinent mythoposis, the infantile symbolism, the sickly detestation of the body, and the profound misanthropy. Heart shows that rather than being a religion that stifled and restricted, Christianity with its gospel message of transformation and deliverance from the oppressive powers brought hope and new life to a pagan world characterized by, quote, unremitting melancholy. The world was not an accident, an emanation, or a reflection of something else, but rather, quote, the gratuitous gift of divine love, good in itself, and, quote, by that by its very autonomy gives eloquent witness to the beauty and power of the God who made it. The Christian message and worldview is not derivative. It is something entirely new. 
in contrast to the pagan view where the world just is in the christian view it is becoming next in the final section reaction and retreat modernity and the eclipse of the human Hart returns to his disappointment with the paucity of intellect found among the new atheists, noting, quote, It probably says more than it is comfortable to know about the relative vapidity of our culture that we have lost the capacity to produce profound unbelief. In the remaining pages of the book, he highlights the impact of these anemic thought processes on the foundational beliefs in our society. Things such as liberty, values, the worth of the individual, a shriveling of self, as well as the greater community. So this review has been a racing overview of a few of the topics within the book. Rather than being so much a primer on atheists and their delusions, it is a primer on our Christian heritage, equipping us with the tools, the information to refute many of the abysmally ignorant beliefs that we come across so often. It isn't so much a book that you sit down and read through it at one sitting, although some might, but rather one to read through in sections and to have on hand for reference when subjects come up. So this is just a study tip. When the book, while the book does have an index of people, I recommend creating your own topical index on one of the blank pages to make it easy to find the discussion on certain topics. For example, slavery, pages 177 through 178, the impact on women, pages 158 through 161, through crusades, pages 88 through 90, and so on. If you've read the book, what are your thoughts? Which section had the most impact to you? So you can comment on the book if you go to raisetowalk.org forward slash P44, or feel free to send me an email at contact at raisetowalk.org. And if you haven't read the book, I hope that this sparks uh, your curiosity and it interests you enough to read it. If you again, if you go to raisetowalk.org forward slash p44, there'll be links to uh, where you can get the book online. So now let's end this time with a prayer. Father, thank thank you so much for your your kindness and your gifts to us. That you've you've gifted each of us with something very special, so we can participate in furthering your kingdom. And I thank you, Lord, for David Bentley Hart and his gift for words and, and for research and for making connections and explaining how the different influences fit into the total history. Thank you, Lord, for this book and that it, it gives us a better understanding as, of, as Christians of where we came from and the history and the heritage of our faith. Lord, thank you so much for the richness. Help us to more fully understand you and help us have more appreciation for those who have come before us. And we thank you for all of this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Raised to Walk podcast. We'd love for you to continue to walk with us. So head over to raisedtowalk.org news to get free updates. Have a blessed day, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.